Welcome to Listen, University of Oulu's podcast called An Interview with Honorary Doctor. In this podcast, we will get to know more closely the lives and careers of honorary doctors who will be conferred in the 11th conferment ceremony of the University of Oulu. The university has invited persons for conferment who have collaborated significantly with researchers in the University of Oulu. In addition, invitations have been made to persons who have distinguished themselves significantly in other ways in the society and for the benefit of operations of the university. Conferment of an honorary doctorate is the highest honor that the university can confer to a person. My name is Simo Kekäläinen, and our guest today will be honorary doctor, research professor emerita Sandra A. Thompson. Welcome, Sandra Thompson. Thank you very much. And for the purposes of this interview, we've decided to call each other by our first names. So I will be talking to Sandy and Sandy will be talking to Simo. So we'll keep this very informal while we have a great discussion with each other. This is one of the hallmarks of my entire relationship with colleagues in Finland. We are informal. <laughs> Sounds wonderful, just like we Finns most often are. So, uh, Sandy, you are an internationally recognized pioneer in interactional linguistics and an expert in functional linguistics. But my very first question for you would be, where does the story of Sandra Anir Thompson start? Oh, thank you. I have always... Uh, loved the idea of language. I've loved languages um, and I would read whatever I could get um, my hands on um, on the English language and language in general. Um, I remember as a child my mother had learned enough French to pronounce the name of a restaurant that we had visited um, in uh, in Quebec, and it was called Carieu, <laughs> with two front-rounded vowels, U with a um, umlaut over. And I begged her to say that word again and again and again. I was so fascinated by these U sounds. Uh, and of course, Finnish has them too. From there, I... Uh, decided to major in French in college, but linguistics professors came to my university uh, while I was in my third year. And it turned out, uh, I immediately went to visit them and said, I'd like to know more about linguistics. And I've never looked back. So I, uh, I consider uh, getting into linguistics as an undergrad as being one of the highlights of my career. Shortly after that, I had already studied French, a little German, uh, even a little Russian, and I proudly told my linguistics teachers about that. And one of them, who was Chinese, said, you have only looked at Indo-European languages. You have to branch out. I'm going to be teaching a course in Chinese next quarter, and I want you there. And I said, it's a deal. 
And again, I've never looked back. So Chinese uh, became a, an obsession and a passion. Uh, and I think I was very, very fortunate, able to major in linguistics, able to continue at that university uh, to get a master's and a PhD in linguistics. And even perhaps more fortunate to, uh, to be able to get a job at UCLA. And I taught at UCLA for about 20 years and was uh, then able to move to UC Santa Barbara and taught here for another 20 years. Um, the story of the move is a, another story. We, uh, we may or may not return to it, but thank you. That's, um, that's how linguistics started for me and what kinds of good fortune I've, uh, I've had in pursuing this passion. That's a wonderful story. We're definitely going to get back to the moving story. But uh, did your father or mother have a um, background in linguistics? Were they also keen language learners? Uh, interesting. My mother had uh, studied French and found German much easier in spite of the restaurant with the two U's in it. Uh, and my father was always a language uh, kind of a language freak, but he never really was able to pursue it very intensely. He loved Russian music, and so the language I think he liked to work on the most is Russian, and he, he would take a few um, radio courses, buy a few Russian books, and so forth. And uh, I think he was kind of fascinated by the fact that I was able to uh, pursue language study as much as I was. Interesting. And uh, when you embarked on your academical career, did you think already in the bachelor's, bachelor's phase that this is going to be my career, studying languages and teaching and researching at the university? How were your thoughts back then? That's very interesting. Uh, no, I didn't. I was just doing what a college student might do and pursuing what she loved. And little by little, I was looking around me and I realized that uh, I wanted to learn more and what you will do is get a master's degree. And I then wanted to learn even more and uh, right away was happy to be able to go for a PhD. And it became very clear to me in these graduate studies that um, <clears throat> that the academic life was the life I was heading towards. But no, at the beginning, I was I was just having a wonderful time. <laughs> and the greatest careers, of course, always stem from passion. And languages seem to be a passion for you. Um, you mentioned the French restaurant and the ooh sounds and uh, other things that fascinated you when you were young. Um, how many languages have you actually worked with? And is there a special language that is very, very close to your heart and why? Interesting. Thank you. Yeah. I, um, I've worked on <clears throat> really three languages. Um, 
my favorite and perhaps most fluent languages uh, is Mandarin Chinese. But I've also worked with colleagues who are native speakers of Korean and Japanese. And I've had another very interesting uh, opportunity um, to work on some more uh, unusual languages, less studied languages, because at UC Santa Barbara, we have a course for PhD students called Field Methods. And our Finnish students um, were always so impressed with this because in their uh, universities, there's no such thing as field methods. And what that involves is the teacher selects a language for which there would be a speaker in the university someplace. And um, the first one I did was an African language called Obolo. And neither the teacher nor the students know anything about this language. Um, they are practicing for going into the field and uh, conducting field work on a language they don't know. So the speaker, of course, is to uh, work with the students for a year on this field methods class has to be bilingual. So we can start with English and begin by asking, what's the word for this and what's the word for that? And over the course of my career at UC Santa Barbara, I've been able to teach field methods four times, uh, two African languages, one language of Southern India, and one language of uh, uh, a Berber language of, of Northern Africa, actually, um, named Tashal Heat. Absolutely wonderful stories. As you mentioned, uh, UC Santa Barbara has been your home and the academic home for the last 30 years for you. Um, are there any highlights from your career or very uplifting experiences, in addition to teaching this fieldwork, that you would sort of um, want to highlight from your career as a professor in linguistics? I consider uh, have had, as you can guess, a number of highlights, uh, almost all of them I consider to be uh, bits of very good fortune. As I said, the first couple were at my university, Ohio State University, the uh, state that I come from. Getting into linguistics, having these linguistics professors joining that university and then seeing the department growing and growing and growing um, so that I was able to pursue three degrees there without having any, um, to any repetition because the department was growing. Uh, getting to study Chinese and then while I was still a graduate student, getting to go to Taiwan. And I've now been back to Taiwan some dozen of times, uh, getting to know colleagues there, um, being able to return there. And uh, my very first year spent in Taiwan was a research project on how little babies learn the tones of Mandarin. Uh, and no research had been done on that topic before that. Uh, 
I was very, very fortunate. Getting the position at UCLA allowed me to um, participate in an exceptionally rich environment surrounded by interesting uh, colleagues and students and ideas. And it gave me a chance to formulate my own reaction about Chomsky and linguistics. And very early on, uh, I realized that that was a program that didn't fit with my understanding of the nature of language. So I was able at UCLA to launch a, a research career. I discovered uh, a world of looking at language in its context. Um, and was able to begin some collaborations. Um, I met three of my currently closest friends at UCLA, people who were my students and became my co-authors and, and close, close friends. Uh, I won a Distinguished Teaching Award at UCLA. Uh, I was able to go and work in China in 1980. And then my move to UC Santa Barbara, I think, was another uh, major highlight of, of my career, enabling me to uh, mentor uh, students who were of the same mind in linguistics uh, and to work with colleagues who shared a, a similar view of what language is like. Um, I won a Lifetime Achievement Award from the International uh, Pragmatics Association just a couple of years ago. And now I would say uh, the most recent highlight has been the honorary doctorate at University of Oulu. What a wonderful and decorated career you have. Um, you were also mentioning the move to UC Santa Barbara. So this happened in 1986, and you had a story uh, related to the move to UC, UCSB. I've hinted at it. Um, <laughs> at UCLA, the mood was um, quite predominantly uh, following the program of, of Noam Chomsky and a formalist uh, uh, <clears throat> approach to language, uh, thinking of language in kind of computational terms. And as I said, uh, through the 70s and 80s with work with colleagues outside of UCLA, I was able to uh, uh, be able to expand my interest in pursuing language as a social affair, not a mechanical computer in the head kind of idea. And I became increasingly uncomfortable at UCLA uh, with the pre prevailing Chomskyan uh, approach to both to teaching and training. Um, I found that the courses I was offering uh, were became uh, non-required courses. And when the opportunity arose for me to join the faculty in linguistics and begin a PhD program, I was quite instrumental in 
setting up this PhD program in functional linguistics. And a big part of functional linguistics was um, the approach to discourse, written discourse, um, monologue discourse, but for me, primarily interactional discourse, uh, conversations and everyday encounters. And that underlies my pleasure at having moved to UC Santa Barbara. Um, you were already hinting at the differences that different fields of linguistics have. And I think this would serve as a great bridge from moving uh, from the career point to research side of our interview. And since we have the pleasure of having a uh, professional of linguistics uh, in, in this interview, maybe I could start with a question, a philosophical question maybe. So for our listeners all around Oulu, all around the world, how would you define what is language? I conceive of language as a, as a complex adaptive system. And uh, as you probably know, in the sciences, um, we can compare language to a number of complex adaptive systems. Uh, some favorite examples are uh, anthills or termite mounds or cloud formations, schools of fish, um, where the members of a group are pursuing their own individual goals, but as they do so, a system emerges. And um, this is an adaptive system. It's orderly, but it's unpredictable in certain respects. And observers can still see many, many recurring patterns and regularities in the system. And these regularities, orderly practices of, in our case, human social life, are what we consider to be grammar, the grammar of a language, of a community whose members are doing their own thing. They are interacting with each other. They are forming collectivities, families, villages, towns. They are getting each other to do things. They're being political. They are accomplishing tasks. And as they do these things, the system that they use to communicate continues to adapt itself. And this is the nature of language, extremely social. Um, there are cognitive aspects of language. Our brains are designed to take advantage of all the inferential capabilities that we have and um, build them into the system. As we talk to each other, we innovate and the system changes and so languages change. Um, and this is all the way it is. Um, 
So that would be my view of language. I would say it's fairly, quite widely shared. Um, many, uh, many, many linguists are now thinking about language in more social terms, uh, various methodologies and so forth. But one of the, the one that's been central for me has been interactional linguistics. Uh, studying the patterns and the recurrent regularities in the way we use our language and our bodies and our voice qualities um, and draw on this system that we've all come to adapt as our mode of interacting with each other. Just as you said, this social side of language is also something which takes form in the way you collaborate. So in order to study linguistics, you also need to meet a lot of people and do a lot of collaboration. And I think this brings us to Oulu. So how has your connection to Oulu been formed in the very first place? I was... Um I was so happy when our first uh, PhD student from Olu uh, applied to our program. And this was, of course, Elise Kerkeinen, um, my very, very close friend and um, cherished uh, student, become co-author and so forth. Um, at that time, I had not known very much about Olu. Um, I had a had heard of Nokia, uh, <laughs> uh, but Elise had such personality and such radiance. I immediately began to want to know more about Olu, uh, and she, of course, was happy to tell me. Um, I was able to visit Olu quite. Well, would be five years after that because I uh, I didn't visit Olu until she was returned there as a as a faculty member. Um, but in the meantime, I worked with her. I heard about her mentor Heiki, and Heiki came to visit UC Santa Barbara. We had lunch together more than once, um, and from him I learned about further research in. Uh, the Department of English Philology, it's called, as you know. Um, and not long after that, some more Olu students came to UC Santa Barbara. We began to have trouble funding PhD researchers uh, from international, um, from other countries at University of California. So these people came as visiting scholars and they would spend uh, a year or sometimes a little less. Sometimes they were able to return. So we had Dina Kaysenen visiting us. We had Penty Haddington for a year. And from these people, I learned so much uh, about Finnish linguistics, about uh, the pursuit of linguistics in Olu. And as you well know, since then, the department has become one of the centers of interactional linguistics. Um, these people who have spent some time at UC Santa Barbara 
would have worked with me, but also many of my colleagues, especially people working on conversation. And uh, I've been so delighted to see the kinds of research programs that are now being pursued, the COACT project and with Tina and now Mirka, um, going out and doing research, looking at humans out in nature and, and searching for mushrooms. It, it's, it's just been terrific. And I feel the connection between University of Olu and UC Santa Barbara uh, has, has been very, very close because of uh, these wonderful people and their chance to, for them to come to UC Santa Barbara. And the collaborations continues until this day, of course. Um, uh, when we talk about languages and linguistics, we always have to take into account, just as you said, social side of it and the culture. So thinking about the first time you met Finnish researchers coming from a totally different culture, one could say, um, what, what are your methods of collaboration? How, were, how are you able to meet with people from very different, different cultural backgrounds and form these kind of relationships that then lead into collaboration? I think this happens centered on what it is that we share in spite of different cultures. And in the case of these students who uh, have committed to following a PhD program, at my university and my role as, um, as a professor in that context, we naturally had a, a shared focus. Um, they took my classes and the classes of my colleagues and we could talk about their research projects. I remember one interesting incident um, at UCSB, we encourage students to um, branch out and not specialize too narrowly. But when Elise arrived in our department, she planned to do a PhD dissertation on the same topic as her master's thesis. And at UC Santa Barbara, that's not the pattern. So we had some interesting discussions about that. In the end, um, I think she felt she had been exposed to so much, so many new ideas that she had become fascinated with a problem that wasn't uh, really very much the same as her master's thesis that she had done at Olu. And so she ended up branching out because it, uh, it kind of happened naturally. But that was something that surprised me um, about Finnish research um, that's quite different from the American. But it, was, it wasn't a problem. It was just a, a piece of um, uh, one difference that we had to iron out. We consistently felt that the, what was drawing us together was much deeper than any differences that we that we might have noticed. 
we can't talk about languages without talking about the society. So uh, languages define society and also could be said vice versa. Society defines language use. Um, how do you see the dominating role of English in the world? And how about the study of languages that are endangered? Just as you were talking about earlier, how you were going to um, uh, teach the of African languages and South Indian languages. What kind of impact do they have on the research community and the world around us? I have, um, I have a couple of thoughts on that question. One is I regret the hegemony of English as a world language. Um, I've had to struggle to overcome my own feelings of guilt that the language I speak is the world's language and no one else's language uh, has that status. Um, and it affects my life in almost every day. If I travel, I can expect to find people who speak English. Uh, but slowly as I've become older, I've realized I have to accept this. Um, I can't change it. It's a reality. And if a Finnish speaker were to visit Morocco and not be able to find a Finnish speaker, it's uh, just a fact of life. Um, and you all have known this since very early days when it's become clear to you that you also have to learn English. and. Of course, Finns have done so as, with uh, as much success as anyone on earth, but <clears throat> uh, I've, I've uh, mainly overcome my guilt. But one of the most um, startling and um, gratifying changes in the field of linguistics in my life has been the new renewed emphasis on language documentation and the study of minority languages, little studied languages, underdocumented languages. Now I'm proud to be part of a department that's become a world leader in language documentation. And um, I'm I feel very fortunate and honored to be working among a group of colleagues who have dedicated themselves to the uh, technology and the social aspects of working with endangered language communities. It's a hard road because of the world economy, of course, and the concern that too much focus on a minority language won't uh, get you the economic benefits that you might deserve. So it's a complex picture. Um, linguists have different takes on it. Um, uh, very interesting debates within linguistics as to whether linguists should promote the a minority language if it means that its speakers will lose out economically. And there are obvious uh, moral questions, but at the, just in the terms of linguistics, I'm quite pleased uh, to see this new emphasis on 
trying to understand as much as we can about as many languages as we can. Uh, I myself was able to play a small role in the documentation of a native Californian language. Uh, I worked with a UCSB colleague on the last, with the last living speaker of the language known as WAPO, W-A-P-P-O, and my colleague and I were able to write a grammar of this language with the last speaker who was something in her late 80s when we first met her. Uh, so I have also played a very small role in, uh, in the documentation of uh, one of these now disappeared languages of California. Sandy, if, if we look back at your career right now, is there a point or a result that you would like the world to remember you from? I would love for the world to remember the social side of language, grammar, uh, every aspect of the study of language, to be looked at from a social point of view. I do see in the media and uh, both inside and outside the field of linguistics, I do see a lot of emphasis on what's in the brain and still uh, the idea that one brain communicates with another brain, uh, formulates what they want to say and sends it as a message over here, and then this brain decodes. <clears throat> I would be very happy for people in general to realize how much the uh, mechanics of language, the grammar, uh, and the patterns that we see, the rules of grammar, if you will, the 14 cases that Finnish speakers can use with great ease. I'd like to see all of that being studied from the point of view of social, um, social patterns of interaction. So when I see <clears throat> people in other fields kind of accepting a, a, maybe a formalistic approach to language, I would like um, to have my work and some of the work of many of my colleagues um, being looked at a little bit more carefully. One interesting example to me is we make heavy use of categorizing. Um, cognitive storage and retrieval routines. All of that is very real. I think some practitioners uh, looking at the social side of language tend to um, <clears throat> uh, maybe even forget these cognitive realities. Um, so I'd like to see emphasis on how language is both cognitive and social. You can't leave either side out. Um, I'd like to see more focus on the value of repeated experiences and um, <clears throat> see people 
thinking more deeply about language as social so that they can be objective and critical in reading um, approaches that take a very cognitive approach. Uh, I'd like to see people working on minority languages and language documentation uh, looking at cultural practices and merging sociological and anthropological approaches with their study of, of the mechanics of language. I would hope that the kinds of research that I've been doing and the collaborations I've had would encourage more thinking in this direction. And I do think it's happening. I do see it in, uh, in many spheres, especially in the field of linguistics. I think the, um, <clears throat> the hegemony of uh, formalistic approaches to language is basically over. Um, and I think the field is adapting to the social realities of, of uh, studying language. University of Olu playing a, a major role, of course. A more emphasis on mushroom hunting and bodies and language. <laughs> that would be a happy outcome for me. So just as in physics, we are looking for the grand theory, the theory of everything for linguistics too. So that's a big journey to undertake too. S Sandy, um, as the most recent honour in your very impressive career, you've been conferred as an honorary doctor of the University of Oulu. My question to you is, uh, how does it feel like? Uh, will, you, will we be hearing a speech in Finnish from you when the moment comes for the ceremony? <laughs> I wish my Finnish were good enough. <clears throat> it's... it's easy to say what this means to me um, from the very moment I received the, the letter. I, I, I felt all a very strong sense of, of honor. I feel very honored. But I also feel um, the social side of this so strongly, uh, and that is the personal connections with people who've become um, I'm happy to be able to say my personal friends. The honorary doctorate um, at Olu means something very special to me, of course, because of my deep friendship with Elise and the way in which I miss her being able to uh, join in in this. I'd like to... I don't know about what's going on up in heaven, if, if there is such a place, but I like to think of her as knowing about this and watching and uh, sharing the, uh, my pleasure with uh, this honor, honoring Elise, honoring our friendship and honoring the uh, legacy that she's left in the form of her students and the friendships that we continue uh, uh, almost taken for granted. Of course, uh, there is going to be this continued uh, connection. So to me, I think the honor, the uh, honorary doctorate kind of symbolizes my 
relationship with Olu and the research friends and colleagues that I have in the Department of English. An absolutely wonderful story and funny in a way because you mentioned the word relationship with the University of Oulu. We've come up with a question for each honorary doctorate to be presented at the very end of the interview and I think this is going to fit you very well. The question is, if you were to be asked uh, to describe University of Oulu with three words, what would those words be and why? The three words I would use for the unique connection that I have with the University of Oulu, in particular the English department, would be warm and welcoming. Warm and welcoming, just as you are, Sandy, too. It's been a wonderful interview. We've moved on from history to the role of linguistics, society, and the future. A fascinating journey. I've learned a lot, and I'm very sure our listeners have also been learning a lot. Thank you so much, Sandy, for coming to this interview. Thank you very much, Simo. It's been my great pleasure. My pleasure, too. Thank you. Thank you.